This is the River Radius, a cultural nexus of rivers, people, and boats. I am your host, Sam Carter. Welcome. Why do we as a state think it's okay that, you know, if you drive up the I-5 that goes all the way up California and drive through the Central Valley, which is a desert, the entire I-5 with just minor interruptions is almond trees that go further than the eye can see, sometimes walnut trees or pistachio trees. And a lot of these crops are being exported. It's not like we're growing the important food and fiber that we we need in California, but we feel that it's right to grow 80% of the world's almonds in this desert and export that. Today's episode is an interview with the writer and director of a new film. The director's name is Jacob Morrison, and the film is River's End, California's latest water war. This film is publishing this first week of November 2021 and looks at the relationship in California between its two largest rivers, the San Joaquin and the Sacramento, and the massive agriculture industry there that is using about 80% of the fresh water in California. As you might imagine, this impacts a lot. River health, salmon fisheries, how much water reaches the estuary and the delta, and where the 39 million people in California find their municipal water. It's not a simple situation, and you might be linked in more than you realize. 80% of the world's almond crops come from California and are grown in desert landscapes with river water that is diverted many miles to the trees. About half of all fruits, nuts, and vegetables sold in the United States come from California's $50 billion agriculture industry. Another way to consider this is that a tremendous amount of California's river water is exported away from California for human consumption in the form of edible crops. So, what might a curious college kid with a camera find out about water in California? Come meet Jacob Morrison and his film, River's End. Would you please introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. My name's Jacob Morrison. I'm the director of a new documentary called River's End, California's Latest Water War which sort of covers California's water conflicts and draws some parallels to how they might be similar to some other places around the world. And what is your role in the film? I understand you're the writer and the director. Your role is a bit different in my eyes because you started this while you're in school. So this one, it started when I was in film school at USC. It started as this little tiny project that I was doing with my cousin, he was basically coordinating with the interview subjects, and I was going out filming uh, maybe with one friend, interviewing everyone, editing it myself. There was no like team who was like uh, preparing interview questions for me. That was all the kind of hard work I had to do. You know, worked with one animator and one composer, musician who performed the whole score, and you know, it's a very, very small team. But that's as it is, you know, for your first film, when you have to prove that you can even do this. So you're doing the research. Am I right to assume now that you're a, a modest expert on California water? In a way, yeah. I mean, I certainly had to learn as much as I possibly could in the years I had uh, making this film. My information all kind of relies on all of the experts that I speak to. So it's not like I personally am doing the science or the history research or anything like that. I'm sure at this point, I, I probably know more than, you know, 0.1% of of Californians, but which is not saying a lot, right? Because most people just don't even know where their water comes from and don't care. And you're from California. I'm from Southern California. Yeah, I'm originally from San Diego, and then now I'm in Los Angeles. 
I think I could assume what your intention is with the film just based on what you're saying, but what do you believe your intention is with this film? Well, I'll tell you, like, I have no previous connection to these issues. I'm not someone who is in agriculture. I'm not someone who is a river runner. I was just someone who was really interested in, during the height of the last drought, just stories I was reading about how they affect different people and communities in different ways, and that there are stories where there might be a town in the Central Valley where uh, their wells are going dry, and then nearby there's agricultural farms that are digging deeper and deeper wells so that they can continue their livelihood and their business. But then, you know, the effects of that are it makes those towns have an even greater challenge to get their water because that aquifer is depleting. I don't know, just sort of like that privatization of water and the way that water is sort of controlled was really fascinating because I always just sort of thought my water comes from the tap um, and I would never have to worry about it. It was really a process of exploration. And I think as I talked to more and more people, I formed a better picture of what this film was supposed to be about and what I actually believed. I, I just could never have imagined this film that I've ended up making in the end. I, I didn't know what I didn't know, and it's a lot more complicated than I ever could have anticipated. So I really just tried to represent as best as I could what everyone was telling me and really keep the parts that, through my research, really hold up. Do you like, do you like your film? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I personally feel that I have created a great kind of 101 on a lot of aspects of kind of understanding California water. That's, I think, a good place to be. It obviously has some, you might call them opinions or just some, some focuses that I think um, some people will not love to hear, but I feel that I can stand by every everything in the movie. California has this interesting role in the United States. As I do my best to stay tuned to big topics in America and the world, I see that California is frankly a leader in a lot of ways. Economically, environmentally, they, they are one of the leaders in terms of protections for the climate of California, which then their efforts precipitate into the rest of the country. You bring it up in the film. I forget who says it in the film, but someone kind of brings up the idea that California is a leader in so many ways, but they're not really a leader in water I think it's easy to say California's got a mess of a water show. And it's really, you, you do a great job in the film of showing the, the plumbing system that's been developed across the state. That's, you know, that's also the story of all the West and even the Midwest. The Great Lakes Basin and the, and the Mississippi River Basin are joined because the Illinois River has been carved out, dredged out, and flows reversed. And now these two basins are connected the Atchafalaya is not allowed to flow with the Mississippi water. We do this all across the country. I kind of think California is the leader. It's not a good leader, in my opinion, because the rivers aren't healthy, the water flows aren't, you know, the fish aren't great. But I do think that, they are, they're, that what they do, the rest of the country does. Let's talk through that dichotomy that they are a leader, but it's not a good leader. What, what does that look like? I would agree with you. And I do think in many ways California is also a positive leader. I mean, I think, for example, Los Angeles's population has grown over the past few decades and its water use has remained relatively flat due to water you know, reuse and efficiency and things like that. So, I, you know, it's not fair, I think, to say that it's all bad and these are obviously very nuanced things. What's happened in California is we have just started getting used to using more water than is sustainable. And I think when you look at the proportions of where humans are using water, it is a fact that of the water that people use, 80% is used by agriculture. 
growing a particular crop, such as almonds, walnuts, and pistachios, which just those three crops alone collectively use more water than all of the cities in California combined. That puts just a lot of strain, obviously, on our rivers and our ecosystems to such an extent that, you know, until very recently, the San Joaquin River, uh, which is the second longest river in, in California, ran completely dry because of water diversions specifically for agriculture and, and a little bit uh, to cities, but but largely for agriculture. You know, it's hard to, like, look at this big picture where two-thirds of Californians get at least some of their water from this place called the Bay Delta. The majority of Californians have never even heard of that place, so we're just not thinking about water, really. I mean, most of us take it for granted. And that place is an ecosystem that's really, really in decline. It's hard to look at us, I think, and say, well, they've really got it figured out, and everyone around the world should do what they're doing. But I do think that just because of where California is situated in the globe, in many ways, we get hit pretty hard by climate change. And it's changing our hydrology in such a way where we have periods of drought and then more intense shorter periods of flooding and stuff like that. So we're not dealing maybe as well as we could with the situation, but we might be having more to deal with than other people at the same time. It's a little hard to compare, I think, other places to California. But I also agree with your statement that what's happening in California is in many ways reflected across other places. Other places also use too much water and really screw up the hydrology of their states and and their rivers. You know, it's just a huge topic, but I think another thing just important to note is there are people in the film who will say, you know, because California is the fifth largest economy in in the world and because it's got these incredible research institutions and, you know, the ingenuity of Silicon Valley and whatnot, if we can't solve our water problems, how can we expect other places to that may not have the resources that California does? I think that is an interesting question as well. So your film gets into the the debate between water use by ag versus water use by the tap, by just humans in their homes. One of one of your guests talks about how ag uses about 80% of the available water in California. And I've heard that same number in a lot of western states where I live it's about 87% in the four yeah. corners and and very similar around the world as well actually. Is it? Okay. So, yeah. So this is this kind of pattern of 80% of use of water goes to ag. And then there's a comparison that talks about how California ag is a $50 billion a year industry, which is phenomenal. But then that's only 2.5% of the overall California economy that's at $2 trillion. This is an amazing set of numbers. You know, I'm the first guy who's going to say there's some things in the ag world that could change. I don't exactly know what they are because I'm not a professional farmer, but I but I am around enough to see certain ways that things are done to believe there are ways to reduce the water use. But I, I also think that it felt like the comparison was trying to suggest that ag gets so much water, 80% of the water, but it's really not that big of a deal to the to the state of California based on economics. What what does that really mean? Because people have to eat. People have to have food. I'm curious what you think about that idea that the 80% compared to the 2.5%. This is something that I really kind of chewed on for the entire making of the film. The way I look at it is, is a couple things. I think, one, the reason why people like to focus on how only 2.5% of the economy is agriculture, despite another water use being so great, is only interesting in that people feel a lot that 
one of the key reasons why we shouldn't look towards changing the agricultural sector in California is because it would have this negative effect on the economy. So I think understanding the small impact on the overall economy that it has is key just towards understanding to what extent it might have ripple effects that are going to affect other industries. And I think another point that's key to this is, you know, well, aren't they growing important food and fiber that everyone needs to eat? And isn't that an important thing too? And isn't it important that we grow our food here in California or in the United States as opposed to importing it from other places where maybe that's a national security risk if, if something were to happen and make the world less stable? And I think, you know, those are all valid points. What I'm really interested in is like, why do we as a state think it's okay that, you know, if you drive up the I-5 that goes all the way up California and drive through the Central Valley, which is a desert, the entire I-5 with just minor interruptions is almond trees that go further than the eye can see, sometimes walnut trees or pistachio trees. And a lot of these crops are being exported. It's not like we're growing the important food and fiber that we, we need in California, but we feel that it's right to grow 80% of the world's almonds in this desert and export that. You would love to see there be more trickle down in the economy in these Central Valley communities. A lot of these places where we grow these crops, like the Westlands Water District, which is the largest agricultural water district in the country, is also, um, according to some studies, the poorest congressional district in the United States. So their, their tax money is not going towards these communities. So these communities in Central Valley have seen like record numbers of school closures and these industries wouldn't be possible without these workers, but these workers just seem to be treated so poorly as a whole. Of course, it's not always true and there are some farms that do a good job, but overall there's a lot of poverty so I just look at this big picture, right? And I go, ah, you know, yeah, maybe a lot of agriculture is important. You know, I'm not saying agriculture is evil or bad by any means, but like, couldn't we regulate it or do something just to make sure that we're doing agriculture responsibly and not kind of exporting things that we really don't need to grow while our rivers are draining up and while, you know, our, our species are going towards extinction and while the salmon fishing industry is going in the toilet and tribes that rely on salmon fishing in Northern California are also calling this a cultural genocide. We have to balance our interests and it just doesn't feel balanced right now. Let's talk about Westlands. You hit on it a little bit, but would you give us a succinct summary of Westlands, the area, the region, and then also the Westlands Water District? The Westlands Water District is in the Central Valley. It's larger than the state of Rhode Island. It's one of those places that has junior water rights. They've really had to kind of contract with the state to get their water, and they're usually the first people to not get their water allocations during a drought. So they're oftentimes some of the more vocal people in the media, you know, about how, how drought is affecting them. Westlands overall is a place of kind of monoculture. So it's a place where you drive through and it's you know, acres and acres and acres and acres of almonds, acres and acres and acres and acres of walnuts and pistachios. Then there might be some oranges, there might be some other things. They, they have huge farms like Harris Farms, which I went to. And, you know, Harris Farms is the largest cattle ranch in at least the state. And people know it as the place that provides beef to In-N-Out. But they also gotten really big into to almonds. And, and of course, they grow other things too, tomatoes and whatnot. It's, it's very surreal, truly, to, to be 
driving through it or to be operating a drone above it and just seeing kind of this endless expanse of monoculture. The farms there have to be very, very large in order to be profitable to some extent. There's only a handful of small kind of family farms in the Westlands Water District area. There are some great people out there. There are some people who are working so hard on water efficiency. And I do think, you know, one thing that Westlands could get some credit for is they've been really on the forefront of helping either pay for or develop yeah, water efficiency technologies. It's a complicated place and it's a very, very odd landscape, very dusty, very dry. You could be feeling like you're out in the middle of nowhere. Or you could feel like you're out surrounded by an endless sea of trees. There's a lot of coverage of, the, of Westlands in the film and you're interviewing the general manager probably the most. At one point, the general manager says that maybe Westlands should not be an agriculture community. And then he also goes to compare and say, maybe San Fran should not be where it is expecting to get so much water. And that Los Angeles also should not be expecting to get so much water. And, you know, I think those are statements a lot of people say. You got the guy on the camera saying this, and it is a bit of a conversation about it. Help me understand that. Is, is he really expressing that? What's going on with that part of the film? I would preface this by saying, you know, he walked into the room at the beginning of the interview and goes, what is this? And we go, oh, it's an interview for a documentary. Um, and he was like, oh, oh, okay. You know, I mean, it, it almost seemed like a mistake that we were able to get through and get him on camera. And he just seemed kind of like totally <laughs> flustered once he realized that we had good questions to ask. I, I think that he just kind of was like going, uh, you know, on a train of thought that he, he didn't expect to find himself going on and gave us that quote, which I doubt he would have liked to have given. I don't know that he truly believes that Westlands should go out of production. You know, there's also a lot of reasons that I was not able to include in the film due to time that also suggest Westlands might want to consider doing that. I mean, one of the reasons is that the land in Westlands has selenium, which is a toxic substance when it gets introduced into food at high concentrations which um, has happened in Westlands and has been a huge problem, but also the selenium, more importantly, has been drained into nature preserves where then they were finding birds with two heads that are dead. Uh, that's a whole big thing as well that I couldn't include. But So there's a lot to kind of think about when it comes to is Westlands really the right place to be growing all of these crops? You know, in addition to like that it's a desert and you have to bring water there and they don't have the water rights. And so, yeah, I think he was like, well, look, you know, if you're going to say maybe we don't deserve the water, then, you know, what about these other places like L.A. and San Francisco? And maybe they don't deserve to be there, too. And it's an interesting argument, I guess. But I also think, you know, they're kind of apples and oranges. You know, one's a place where there's lots of people that, and lots of industries. And then here's this sort of geographically large agricultural place in California that seems to have moved largely into growing export crops that are not really uh, helping California as a whole. So I, I don't love his argument, but I, I love that he went there because it just showed that at least he was willing to consider maybe maybe this place shouldn't continue as it is, which is a big thing for the leader of that place to say. But I don't know that he truly believes it. I almost feel like he had to say it so that it shows that he can consider that and still not think that's the right move. That's my opinion. So let's talk about 
one of the other big players in California, which is the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, an organization that has been part of this podcast for two different episodes. We interviewed them about the program to bring uh, wastewater directly to taps. You know, it's not there yet, but they're in the they're in the research phase, and we were able to go out to their facility and get the full tour. And then the second interview was the history, but also the future of Met Water and California Water. You know, I think Met Water, I don't want to call them a monster, but they're a beast of an organization. A $2 billion budget, somewhere from between 1,200 and 1,800 staff members. Uh, they serve 19 million humans tap water in Southern California. A storied organization in the Western kind of American culture, a big offshoot of Manifest Destiny. And I think they had a real messy, ugly early history. I don't really know about what's behind the scenes now, but I see them also doing things like building these plants to take toilet water and turn it into crystal clean, perfectly good water for humans to use. You you said it earlier that LA's population has grown, yet they're using less water than they used to. So I think in some ways Met deserves some credit for these things. <laughs> they are a powerhouse in terms of the water in that state. What's your thoughts around Met what can they do better to improve the water situation in the state of California? They are described in the film as sort of the elephant in the room when it comes to water politics in California. I mean, as powerful as Westlands is, Met is even more powerful, I think. And Met is, yeah, so just for everyone to understand, Met represents Southern California, so Los Angeles, San Diego. It's a huge percentage of the the entire United States population that lives in Southern California. So their business model really is based on selling water to other smaller local districts. They're a water wholesaler. That's their business and that's something they've relied on. And I do think you're right. They deserve a lot of credit for moving towards uh, water reuse and efficiency, even though that doesn't have a lot to do with the business model of just the more water you sell, the more money you make. I do think they are, as we kind of go back to one of our earlier questions, like they're one of the national, if not global leaders in water, but that doesn't mean that they're so good. They just are better than a lot of other places at, at doing this and pushing for this kind of stuff. I am very hopeful. You know, they just got a new general manager who has been talking a lot about really focusing as much as they can on how to use less water and rely less on the sort of traditional engineering kind of focused model of going out and building big projects and taking water from other places and focusing much more on what can we do actually here in Southern California to like keep and develop water that we can use and not have to rely so much on these other places, which also will become less reliable due to climate change. I'm glad to see that they are talking the right talk. I think it's too early to know in this guy's administration if they're going to walk the walk. But I'm, I'm hopeful, basically, that they'll break this pattern of going out and taking water from other places and destroying those places to benefit L.A. If they can focus more on water use and recycling, that, that would be great. The term drought, to me, it's an irrelevant term to use to describe water in the West. When I lived in the Midwest and where I grew up, it was real wet, always raining, and I remember one summer it didn't rain. And the ground literally cracked. And my dad said, hey, we're in a drought. Okay, okay, this is what a drought looks like. But in the West, it's just an arid landscape. And I, I feel like 
I feel like drought is this constant excuse. Like, oh, because it's a drought again, we're going to have these really bad water practices and, and we can do these bad things to riparian zones and aquatic habitat and, and to water levels. And then in your film, you pull out some old footage, decades old, where people talk about the drought in California. And then still today, people talk about the drought in California. I'm curious what your thoughts are around the use of drought as an adjective, and if it's become a message of hyperbole, if we should be using something different, like aridification, and where climate change fits into the conversation as well. I think it's a really key question because, I, I mean, obviously, I, I believe climate change is real, and I do believe that drought will become more prevalent. But, you know, I think like these climate definitions of drought are are just sort of confusing and distracting to people. You know, they, they think that that means that they can blame the problem on, you know, oh, it's not raining enough. And if it just rains more, then we don't have to deal with these problems. It's, it's just like, it goes back to this just like main theme, I think, of the film. It's it's not just a water crisis in terms of, oh, it's not raining enough. It's a, it's a water mismanagement crisis. As long as we continue to use too much water will always be in a kind of a drought in California. It was Gary Bob Curve, program director of the Bay Institute, who said, in a sense, California has been in a drought since the 70s because of unsustainable water use. Periods of less rainfall just put more stress on that, but doesn't change the fact that the rivers are running dry and the ecosystems are crashing. That's how I think about drought. For the average person, I think thinking about drought in terms of you know, just like how much water is in the system based on how much use of the water are we using. Some kind of definition like that, I think is most helpful towards like actually getting people to do something about the problem. I think my last really big question is, is what's, you know, what's next and what's, what are the solutions? And for a lot of my adult life, I've always thought we should just go back to a less polluted, less at risk climate atmosphere landscape and uh, i still feel those ways <laughs> but you know through reading in particular this book that i'm quoting in a lot of interviews right now but through a book by um, elizabeth colbert uh, under white skies great book i really recommend it to folks you know it really talks about shifting the mindset from that of looking backwards but to building the future planet which is it's a little strange for me and the, some of the stuff she talks about that might happen are fairly intense in your experience doing this work and these these interviews and again in California this leading edge of so many things what are the future solutions what are the solutions that that help make water policy and water solutions to fit the future model what 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 are you hearing about and talking about uh, you know i mean i think with california in particular the the main thing that i'm i'm interested in is the, the State Water Resource Control Board, uh, which is the organization, you know, in California that's sort of tasked with uh, regulating how much water we leave in our rivers and how much water we can use and who can use it and where. That board did an independent kind of scientific review, you know, took them like really over 10 years to do this. They wanted to get all the best data and had every kind of uh, interest group speak on this problem of, you know, how much water should we be leaving in our rivers to not sort of see fish headed towards extinction and things like that. 
what they came up with was that in order to sustain California, we would need to leave 70% of the water in the rivers and the rest could be used for everything else. They basically came to this conclusion, which was backed by the best science, and then the board was ready to vote to implement this. And this was right at the end of Jerry Brown's term. And Jerry Brown wrote a letter, basically, with Gavin Newsom, who was going to come in. And together, they, they asked the board, basically, not to enforce this plan. Basically, to this day, nothing has been done by the State Water Resource Control Board. The head of the board is someone who is appointed by the governor. Even though the governor technically doesn't have power over the board, it's supposed to be an independent body. Obviously, if the board does something the governor doesn't want, the governor will just replace the head of the board. And the same thing happened, actually, where Felicia Marcus, who was the head of the state water board, did start the process of trying to implement these flow standards. And then as soon as Gavin Newsom came into power, he removed her from the board. You know, Gavin Newsom has been vocal about trying to do something where, okay, instead of just enforcing these standards, let's let's bring everyone into into the room and come up with a voluntary agreement and other ways maybe that we can... We can, you know, kind of save our ecosystems and not hurt hurt ag too much. Nothing has come out of these talks yet. I think history has proven that if you want to get people to do things, you have to have both a carrot and a stick. I mean, there's no, there's no, you know, if you're saying we're not going to enforce these things, let's find come up with something else. Um, you're just going to get stalling, which is what's what we've been getting. So. What's frustrating is that there is in California kind of an answer of what we could do, and uh, we just don't have the political will to see it through. And uh, that's a problem I think the world is pretty familiar with right now. It's like, how is it that these, you know, industries that that rely on, on resources have really kind of captured government to such an extent that we can't tackle the kind of existential problems of our time, like climate change and all of its many facets. And I think this is, in a way, one facet, because as bad as water issues in California are today, climate change will only make them worse, and these are only going to get more severe. At a certain point, if it ever becomes, you know, an issue of people in the cities actually not getting the water that they need, that's the day I think that agriculture will have to shrink. But I worry that it won't happen before that date. And if it doesn't, then I really think we're going to see rivers in California start to dry up again like the San Joaquin did. So this movie is has been out and about a little bit, kind of film fest. It's gotten some awards. There's been some releases online, but they've been kind of private and short term. In the 1st of November, it's going live and the public can view it. Tell us, tell us about that. When and how can a person sit down and watch this film? Yeah, and I hope they do. On November 2nd, the film will be available on Apple TV, iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, Xbox, (laughs) um, as well as uh, on cable like Comcast. And uh, however you do something on demand on cable, you can get it there too. What's the website, Instagram, that kind of stuff? The film is called River's End, California's Latest Water War. The website's riversendfilm.com. By the way, if you want to learn where your water comes from, which I think is the first step anyone could take. I mean, this audience may already know, but if you want to learn where your water comes from and maybe the impacts that is ongoing around your water source, go to riversendfilm.com resources. And there's a tool there that we have for you. It's a kind of collaboration with the Nature Conservancy that we were able to get that up. 
and it uh, is a global map and you can kind of zoom in and find where your water comes from. Our socials are all at Rivers and Film. So uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, Jacob Morrison, thank you so much for your time this morning to tell us about your film, uh, River's End, and uh, I look forward to helping get it out there and sharing it with folks to explore it. Well, Sam, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a, it's a great podcast and honored to be here. A Sierra Nevada watershed size thank you goes out to Jacob Morrison for sharing his story of building a film and water knowledge about his home state. You can find all of the web and social links for The Rivers End Film in the episode notes. Later this month is an episode about the Gila River and work being done to bring wild and scenic protections to all of the headwater streams of the Gila. Last month, I traveled to the Gila to meet this river and the people there who have been with those waters longer than the United States has existed. Reach out to us anytime via social media or email. That address is hello at theriverradius.com. Thanks so much for joining The River Radius. It's like a world that I never thought I'd enter. We had good questions to ask. I don't want to call him a monster, but they're a beast. He walked into the room at the beginning of the interview and goes, what is this? Yeah.